Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. To me, like, the idea of love has shifted so much from my 20s. What I know it is now is is about resonance. It's about being seen and loved for who you are. Like, literally, that's it. Hello and welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent where I, Olivia Petter, will be talking to different guests about the loves of their lives. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by award-winning journalist, author and speaker, Porna Bell. Porna has published three non-fiction books, including the astonishing memoir, Chase the Rainbow, and her debut novel, In Case of Emergency, has just come out in paperback. I am so excited to talk to her about her work today and can't wait to discuss the loves of her life. So let's get started. Hello, Porna. How are Hi. you? Good, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, so as I mentioned, your debut novel has just come out in paperback. Uh, you've obviously done three nonfiction books that have been hugely successful. Your writing has mostly been in sort of journalism and the nonfiction memoir space. Talk to me a bit about what made you want to write fiction and what that experience was like for you. I wanted to write fiction a really long time ago, actually. So this is probably when I was in my 20s, but I was really, really bad at it. And I wanted, you know, uh, so I was obsessed with magical realism. um, And so I had these various manuscripts uh, unfinished, which were about, uh, you know, these terrible, fantastical stories that got rejected by a lot of different agents. Um, so I kind of actually thought maybe writing fiction is just not, you know, for me and nonfiction felt a lot more comfortable. It felt like an extension of my journalism. But then uh, the pandemic hit and then we had a lot of time to think. And, and one of the things I was doing around that time was doing a fair amount of reading, but I was also watching a lot of TV, right? And I realized that sort of against, um, I would say, the backdrop of a lot of other conversations that were happening. So in particular, like, let's say the Black Lives Matter movement, um, it then sort of prompted, you know, this kind of like tidal wave that then um, in terms of like other cultures and other communities where we were looking at our own kind of issues and our representation and so on and the stories that were being told. And one of the things I noticed from whether it was watching TV or reading books was that there seemed to me that there really needed to to be more stories told um, with, let's say, South Asian female protagonists that weren't necessarily through like a lens of trauma and oppression. And a big um, catalyst for that for me was watching Mindy Kaling's um, Never Have I Ever, which is, you know, a rom-com. And I think I really wanted to tell a story of um, a female protagonist who was, you know, I particularly picked her age for a reason, she's 36. Um, and I wanted to kind of tell the exper- her experience of figuring life out and figuring, figuring dating out and work and all of those other questions that we had, but like told through her lens. So it's not a book about, you know, uh, being South Asian. It's just that the protagonist happens to be and happens to have a family who is. Um, And that was really important for me in order to be able to um, just tell what that experience is like. Because definitely, you know, as a journalist coming up, 
I definitely know that a lot of the lifestyle articles that I would read and lifestyles a space that I've worked in for a really long time did seem to be very predominantly told by white journalists. And I was really interested, not interested is probably the wrong word. I felt it was very vital and necessary to just talk about things that I would talk about with my friends, but to actually be able to give it a space and, and a platform to be able to do that. I like what you say about the fact that the character has no trauma as well and that being really important to the story because I think that so often that is something that potentially sort of old school publishers would maybe ask and be like okay but like what's the actual you know they, they need to make some sort of trauma for a character who isn't white and that would have been like the sort of pull of the story and I feel like we are moving away from that but it's still like you said it still feels somewhat like revolutionary in a way yeah I mean problem, it, it is I mean there's definitely I would a great thing has been in the last couple of years um, there have been a lot more um, particularly I would say South Asian female authors who are in the commercial space which has been you know incredible like Disha Bose just came out with a book that ended up in the Irish Times um, bestseller list which is called Dirty Laundry so you do have the, this I can definitely see that shift happening but, you know, the trauma and oppression narrative, you know, these are tropes, for example, especially on TV, that um, have underpinned my own experiences. So th these are questions that I get asked about my experience without people actually asking me an open-ended question. So that will be the assumption that I must be getting an arranged marriage. That will be the assumption that my parents don't approve of my, you know, my chosen career. And while I understand that stereotypes exist, I just think it's slightly lazy. And I think that there's a way of asking open-ended questions where we don't necessarily use that shorthand that we have come to use just because we see the colour of someone's skin or we see what they look like and, and make an assumption based on that. And, but also it's just because, you know, it, it was, I'm a creative. I really wanted to see people like my family members, like the friends that I have conversations with, reflected in the mainstream, because it was really important to be able to do that. Not, you know, not just as like a, I don't know, it's not meant to be an educational piece. I didn't really, uh, I wrote it because I wanted the people that I know and the wider community to feel reflected in that and go, oh God, finally, you know, great. Like it's not about someone being oppressed like as a corner shop owner's like daughter, you know? Mm, yeah, it's just, it's just so, it's lazy and ignorant, I think, of the industry and sort of the wider culture at large to, to kind of hold on to those stereotypes, particularly now, but it does obviously still happen a lot. Um, and in terms of the actual plot of In Case of Emergency, so it starts with your main character, Belle, she has a sort of near-death experience. So tell us about the story and how it kind of unfolded from that first point. So she has a really amazing career. She's got a pretty high-flying job in London and um, she's kind of like texting on her phone. This isn't a spoiler because it's on the jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Just should say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she is texting on her phone and she falls through like the open doors of a beer cellar, uh, a pub cellar and wakes up in hospital and she finds that her emergency contact has been called and it's her ex-boyfriend from four years ago. And she has like a really big like WTF moment because she could not remember putting him down as her contact, but also she got, has got a lot of time to recuperate. And as she's doing that, she realizes that she doesn't know who her person would be. You know, we all have hopefully a person that we know is in our phone that we would immediately phone or contact if something goes wrong and she just doesn't have that. And more than realizing that she doesn't have, have that, 
She's just thinking, how did my life actually get to this point? And it prompts this examination of, um, you know, her entire friendship groups. So she has a lot of brunch friends. She has a lot of work colleagues, but she doesn't like none of those people when she actually needs them. None of those people really show up for her. And it's, it, you know, they're from the the sort of the school of uh, anything you need, let me know, is, is what I call it, which basically means I don't really want to do anything. So I'm going to put the like onus on you to have to tell me. And of course, like very often people don't ask for help or don't aren't able to articulate what they need. So she revisits, you know, a lot of the, um, the sort of a very core friendship group that she had when she was younger. She also then revisits her relationship with her sister, who she's got a fairly strained relationship with her older sister, who has a teenage daughter and her parents um, as well. And with tied up in and around all of that, which is about reconnection and, you know, and rede that redefining point in your life. Um, it's, it does also look at the fact that, you know, she doesn't really think she wants kids. She doesn't really know what's happening with her love life. But it was also really important for me to write that into the book and for that not to be her defining characteristic. Because very often, particularly with these types of books, particularly with commercial books, you know, um, I, I feel like there is a greater pressure placed on female authors to have to have a romantic resolution, you know, than there is on male authors. Um, and I just didn't, I wanted that to be incidental. I wanted that to be something that she discusses, sure, but it's not the most important thing that her life pivots around. And so the entire book is about her figuring that out. Um, so I would say it's got several layers to it. Yeah. And people tend to like find what they what reflects most in them and you could come from like any background any walk of life but you know you'll find something in there for you yeah. i think i think one of the things that really resonated with me the most was the sort of friendship angle and that kind of storyline because i think this is such a common experience when you kind of come out of your early to mid 20s your the nature of your friendships start to kind of drastically change and you know, it's, I've heard you describe friendships as tidal before, and I think that's a really good way of describing it. And I think that kind of first big tide comes after your sort of mid-twenties when people start getting married, people start having children or talking about children, careers kind of step up and become a more prominent pillar in your life. And as a result, those kind of intimate, everyday friendships that you had with people that maybe you went to school or university with change and maybe fall away a bit and also you change and so everything there's a big kind of shift in that moment and I think the idea of having this kind of near-death experience and waking up and not knowing who your person is or who your kind of gang is is a really really relatable one and and obviously this is something we see Belle going through as she finds herself in this position but what was it that made you want to examine that and you know, obviously I'm talking about this from the perspective of late 20s, but she's in her mid-30s. And what do you think the difference is, you know, if I'm feeling this now, what's the difference between that experience in your mid-30s as well? It's such a, it's such an enormous topic, right? Because I think for me, there's like two things there. So I think that no one really talks about or prepares you for um, the first time that that happens in your 20s, when you realise that, your friends are kind of either moving off in different ways or their their lives are changing and yours is maybe not changing in the same way and and how you navigate that and i remember in my 20s that being such a painful process and part of that pain was just not expecting it and i definitely think that while female friendship is one of the most incredible things the 
I, I for sure know that like from as early as I could remember, the expectation is that you remain friends until the day you die. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, then that's a reflection on you. And, and that says something about your character. So for example, even now when, if I was to tell someone that, you know, I have friends that I don't speak to anymore, I can see it in their eyes. They're, they're, the look is what have I, what have you done as a person mm -hmm. to have created that? And so I think that there is that expectation. And so in your 20s, if you haven't experienced that before, it can be so painful because you feel like this should not, this friendship should not be breaking up or this friendship should not be changing or becoming more distant, you know, in the same, because especially when you're younger, you also just have more time. So you can be time intensive with your friendships in a way that as you get older, you just can't necessarily do that. But I think when you go through it the first time, for me, what I realized was that the thing that was making it really painful was expecting everything to remain exactly the same. And if it didn't remain exactly the same, that meant that we didn't care about each other or that we didn't love each other. Mm -hmm. And I have learned from now having gone through at least about three iterations of this, you know, I'm in my early 40s, that that just isn't the case. And also, if a friendship doesn't work out or if it drops off or if it's just someone you haven't spoken to for a few years, um, it's okay, like it's okay. We're not meant to have everyone in our lives that we have met since birth, you know, it's, that's just not how life works, right? Um, but also sometimes I don't know that, it, I think that friendship has got such strong parallels with, um, with romantic relationships. Like when people go, oh, this friendship ended and I have no idea why. It's like when people go, this relationship ended and I have no idea why, it's like, I think you do probably know why. It's just that it takes a lot of quite painful examination. And very often it requires you to say that it's not all about the other person. I think in friendships it can so become about the good person and the bad person and who was right and who was wrong. And I just don't think that life is as black and white as that. And I think it is owning up to how you are as a friend and, and you know, what were you there for, what were you not there for? that I think we don't necessarily examine enough about our own behavior within that. I think what's really interesting about Belle is that she kind of, she seems to harbor a bit of resentment towards some of the friends who are like progressing in ways that she maybe hasn't, like according to societal progressions and the way that we are supposed to, as women, follow this kind of very neat trajectory of marriage, children and everything else. Um, I was reading this interview that you did with Natasha Lan for Conversations in Love and you spoke about how after the loss of your husband, Rob, you found yourself kind of reevaluating your friendships and trying to work out, you know, in your own way, who was there for you. And one of the quotes that I kind of really picked up on was you said, you know, if I wasn't here, would anyone kind of notice? And you went traveling. And, and then when you came back from traveling, which you wrote about in your book, In Search of Silence, which is brilliant if anyone's listening and wants to read it. And then when you came back, you said that one of the most valuable realizations you had was that it's no one else's responsibility to make you feel loved and secure, um, which I think is an important lesson for Belle as well, you know, to kind of, to avoid that resentment and to avoid those feelings of like, my friends owe me this, you know, like my, and sort of outsourcing your confidence and your own self-love all the time, which is so easy to do. I think particularly now, um, when we have all this kind of rhetoric around self-love and self-acceptance, but there's not really a kind of deeper sense of where to get that from yourself. It's kind of the lazy option is, oh, we just get it from our friends and the people around us that love us and looking for validation elsewhere. But 
obviously if you rely on that, you're going to fall into quite tricky territory when you realise that that's actually not what your friends are for. And if you lean too heavily on them for that, it's going to push people away. Um, so talk to me about how you came to that realisation when you were travelling and, and why it was such a game changer for you. Yeah, I mean, so I've found that what actually causes like a lot of that pain is when you're just trying to hold on to people um, really tightly um, or you're trying to sort of extract something from them to alleviate your own pain around something. And I mean, I would venture to say, because I'm a massive believer in personal evolution, like even how I think about things has changed since I, not, not radically, but it has changed a little bit since I gave that interview mm -hmm. to Natasha. Um, I think for me, a very, very big realization was the understanding that, and particularly after Rob passed away, and it wasn't anything to do with his passing, it was more to do with, I think, understanding that whatever void you have inside of you, and I think everyone has their, their own little, you know, void, however big or small that is, it just can't be filled by someone else. Mm -hmm. And if, for example, you're a people pleaser, as, as I used to be, I think I'm a lot less these days, but if you are, then sometimes that can be transactional, you know, in terms of like how much love and how many obligations you fulfill in order to be able to then receive that back. And if you're then sometimes giving that to people who don't show their love in that way or who just you know, some people just take and they don't necessarily reciprocate. That's a really, really hard place to be. And I think that when I sort of, especially, um, I think when I wrote my second book in Search of Silence, which was when I went traveling, was I was just so angry at like everything. It wasn't at any one particular person. I just, but I was angry at everything. And I was angry that like, I didn't want to feel the way I felt and I didn't see an end point to it. And I did not feel like I really fit in my life and that my friends and my family, as much as I loved them, just couldn't understand the level of pain that I was in. And I think sort of subsequently from that, it is the realization that actually, you know, you can be loved by people and you can be supported by people. And of course, like, you know, there are days that I have that are really difficult where I know if I talk to my best mate or my sister, like they will be able to like make me laugh or help me through that. And so I'm not negating, you know, any of that. I just don't think that you can necessarily rely on another person's love and support to get you through a tough time because they literally can't do the internal work for you. And they can't, like, you know, when you're sort of waking up in the middle of the night, they're not gonna be the people who are there to help you through that because it's just not practical, right? And so I think it's about like working on, on, on doing that internal work and working on that stuff that does make you feel whole. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to move it beyond, like, because I think self-care has become, like, such a sort of buzzword, but it is because it's not just about the things that you're externally buying or that you're doing or, you know, taking a day off or any of that stuff. It's, like, it's a really hard, mucky work of looking at yourself, like, yourself as a person and realising, like, what are the patterns that you get into? What are the mistakes that you keep making? You know, what is the thing that you keep saying that you're going to change that you're not changing? Like, what, what are the things that are holding you back from making those changes? And that's really hard work. Like, people find it really tough to do that. And the reason why I feel that that's so important, I don't think you do all of this work on yourself and then you can make friends with people or then you find love. I think all of this stuff has to go alongside just living, right? But if you don't know like what your internal sense of self is, 
how do you then like form a meaningful friendship or how do you then form like a meaningful relationship with someone? Because to me, like the idea of love has shifted so much from my 20s than it has to what I know it is now. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I know it is now is, is about resonance. It's about being seen and loved for who you are. Like literally that's it. And being around people who, who can see you for who you are, who you feel you can be yourself with mm-hmm. rather than like a different version of yourself. And I just don't think that you can get that kind of love if you don't know who you are. You've said, I mean, you've kind of mentioned that your view of love has changed a lot, but something that you've said before about it is that something you wish you'd known when you were younger is that love is not something that is based on stars aligning and fate and finding your person and finding your lobster. It is something that happens to you over and over again in different forms. Why do you think that is such an important thing to learn as early as possible? And why why don't we have that learning young, like when we're younger? Why do we not have that view of love anyway? I mean, I think... To answer your that that question about why we don't have that view, I think because, it, you know, if you're a woman, I think in particular, and I can only speak to my experience of it, but I think we are so heavily socially conditioned to believe that finding someone, finding our, our one, our romantic partner, is the most important thing that you can do with your life. And I think when you then like layer on things like, social conditioning, which, um, you know, we, we it, maybe it's getting better, but we have grown up, a lot of us, in a world where we have had a greater pressure around us to achieve, quote marks, domestic success in the same way that, let's say, for men, it might be economic success. And when you consider what domestic success is, of course, that includes finding a partner, settling down, getting married, having kids, all of that stuff, right? Um, I would say in terms of um, how it's changed has been that the understanding that, you know, love is something that happens to you over and over again, I think has been really important for me because it it alleviates the pressure on a relationship. So I um, I got this really sweet DM from a lady who was 25 and she was going through her first breakup and just was bereft because she thought that that was her person and you know, and, and what could I say to make her feel better? And I think when you're going through a breakup, you know, there's not much I think that anyone can say because you could say there's more fish in the sea, all of that stuff, but that's not what you wanna hear at that point in time because just everything feels like it's on fire, right? But for me, for sure, the understanding that love is something that is incredible, it's still the most incredible thing, I think, Um, but that even if you love someone and it ends, there's a very high probability that at some point in your lifetime you're going to experience that again, if not more than that. And what that understanding does is it allows you to set your own boundaries, it allows you to say what you want from a relationship and to have standards, to be quite frank, and like we were discussing this earlier in terms of, you know, the, the expectation and the barometer for what, if you're heterosexual, right? What heterosexual women, um, the barometer that's set for, for men, and it's so low, it's so low, <laughs> um, is that what that understanding does is it allows you to be okay with, with 
putting, you know, to set a boundary down or I, I'm not saying, look, don't get me wrong, it can totally go the other way as well. And I definitely, you know, I'm, I'm in an age group where I see people shooting down relationships or dates with people before it even gets started because it doesn't meet some arbitrary list of whatever they want, right? And there is, there is that is also not great. But I definitely think that that knowing when to call time on something, knowing when something is not working for you is is is, is immeasurable. And I think it's very, very closely tied to the understanding that there's not one person for you. Because if you believe that there's one person for you, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that, you, let's say you're in a relationship with someone and this person, you know, it's just maybe not a great partner. They might just be quite thoughtless or you end up having to do most of the housework or whatever it is. If you believe that that person is your one, the amount of crap that you are going to put up with in that relationship to fulfill that narrative, which, by the way, you've set that for yourself. Like, no one else has told you. You don't, like, collect a ticket stub which says, you know, this person is going to be yours forever after. You know, there's, in my opinion, I don't think I don't think that there's something, like, where we're fated to, like, have to be with this one person or whatever. Um, I think that we have multiple soulmates. I don't think that there's only one soulmate. Again, like, because who says that there's only one? It's a belief. Where did that belief come from? It's not based on fact. It's not science. So I think if you can kind of release some of that, it just means that you have like a closer approximation of what you want. And I believe that we all have that sense. Like, so, okay, in certain um, ideologies, we would call this serenity, right? Where um, you have like a baseline level of, of, of when you know when something's messing with that. Like if you're constantly feeling anxious or weird or not yourself around someone, that is the sign to get out of dodge and mm -hmm. to, to set yourself a boundary or to talk to them about what's going on to see whether they can change. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So your first love is a place. Why don't you tell us about that? So my first love is I've chosen India because um, so my um, family background is we're Indian from South India specifically. And um, when I was seven, my parents made the decision. Well, they made the decision a bit earlier than that, but we moved uh, back to India. And the idea was that um, they wanted to raise us as Indian kids. They didn't want us to be, you know, British Asian kids. Um, so we stayed there for about five years and then my dad was like, I can't work here. So we all, th we basically then moved back to the UK. Um, but that particular period in time, I would say for both myself and my sister, um, really was so formative and it, it it, it has shaped so much about us as, as adults and how we see things and how we view things. And even though, you know, when we came back to England, we, we grew up in Kent, so we grew, in a ver grew up in a very, um, I, what well, I did, uh, in a very white-dominated area. Um, 
So India was somewhere that we would go back to regu fairly regularly. You know, I would say, um, you know, the longest we ever went was like maybe three years. So we'd go either every two years or every one year. And all of our cousins, you know, most of them are, are still in India. And I think what's really interesting to me is the India that I know from my family being there and, you know, and how we are there. And also I worked in Mumbai for a, for a little bit of time in my 20s. And then the version of India that you get told about when you're in the UK. And, and for me, that's split out into two things, either other like British Asians who we don't have the same experience or upbringing. So they have a very different relationship to, you know, their sort of country of their parents origin than my sister and I do. Like we very much have a much stronger relationship, I would say. Um, and at the same time, you also have a lot of people who, let's say, um, are not British Asian, but who visit India and then want to talk to you about India and to tell you about their version of India. And also like growing up, you know, in my 20s, like it was a place where um, lots of like travel guides were being written about. It was this whole thing that you just sort of would go there and, and do it as a, as a big trip. And so it's what has kind of happened out of it is it's it, India gets caricaturized so it's like oh my god like isn't it so busy and it's this and it's that and it's like okay yeah I mean yeah it can be but it's it's a huge country you know um so for me it's always been a place that I've just gotten so much out of and I'm so inspired by and that I feel reflects me as a person but one of the things I did in 2018 was I felt it was really important to see India in a way that wasn't just about it being a busy place. It has, you know, the majority of it as a country is rural. And um, I think being able to just go to places that were really quiet, really peaceful, you know, where you've got sort of like, um, like water mass, like, you know, masses of land and so on. It was it was just something that really cemented something in me. I went back to my ancestral homeland, which is this like tiny, um, not so tiny anymore, but it's like a it's sort of along the coastline, along the um, west, southwest of India, and it was it's you know the sand like the sea, all of that kind of coming together, and I just thought, oh, I come from here, like my ancestors come from here, and it was a sense of expansiveness. It was just a really, really deep love of a place that actually means something to me in a way that I feel really rooted and connected to, mm -hmm. um, which I'm really grateful for because for most of my teens and my 20s, I felt like I was stuck between two Indias, the India that I knew and the India that I felt I was being told about by other people mm -hmm. who traveled there. It sounds like a very kind of deeply spiritual connection that you have with it. And I wonder, because everything you're talking about, it's kind of like this idea of, of home. And I think that's such an important thing to establish. Like, where is it that I feel like this reflects who I am, where I feel most comfortable? And it's not necessarily where you grew up. It's not necessarily where you came from. It's just a sense of, of total comfort and, I guess, belonging, right? Would you say that that when you think of home, you think of India? Um, yes and no, because I know that, I know that England is my home. I mean, because the, there are parts of me that are really British, um, you know, and for example, in India, they wouldn't consider me to be Indian. Right. So because, you know, I wasn't born there, 
I don't, ha I, I don't speak the language, I don't have the accent. So throughout my entire life, it's, you know, Indians don't necessarily consider us to be Indian. Um, unless we do something that they're really proud of, in, in which case we're, de <laughs> we're definitely very Indian, which I'm very happy for them to claim <laughs> that, that's fine. Um, but I would say it's, it's complicated mm. because on the one hand, um, you know, I've grown up in Britain or parts of which don't consider me to be British. And I also come from India, which doesn't necessarily consider me to be Indian. So what I feel is it's more of a sense of, so belonging is not just necessarily a place, it's also a people. And so for me, being part of, being in that country, the landscape is like essential to that, sure. But it's also about the people who, who make that up. So one of the places that I went to when I was kind of a travel journalist in the early noughties was the Indian Himalayas, and I'd never been there before. And it wasn't just about the landscape, it was about the people, like they were ridiculously friendly. Um, I learned about their lives and the way that they conduct their lives in a way that like my, it's so different to like how my own family um, uh, are and, and the food that we eat and so on. But I felt like I belonged there, like they're still, we could be, it's the seventh biggest country I think in the world. So it's on one hand, yes, there are parts of me that don't feel like I belong, but I also know that I'm connected to an enormous country and enormous people that I could identify with, like with the click on my fingers. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying before about the, the connection, just like human connection. That's like what I keep kind of returning to over and over again. Um, and your second love is a person. Tell us why you've chosen your sister. So I've chosen my older sister Priya because um, I would say she she has shaped like so much about about my life really that um, I don't know she's always been someone that I've always looked up to. How much older is she's, she? She's she's four years older, but like she is ridiculously cool, and she you know she the way she dresses, like the way she decorates her her home. Mm. Um, I mean, she would she her background is science, so she's a science journalist. So we kind of have, again, we work in different industries, but also we have overlaps, right? The reason why I've chosen her is because, um, number one, there was something that she did for me during the pandemic that was incredible, which was that I was, you know, she's, she lives in Spain, I was in the UK, and I was doing lockdown on my own. I also caught COVID really badly uh, at the beginning, and then I had long COVID where, for 10 months, where I just could not do anything. And she has a kid, you know, so it's not like she doesn't have like a lot going on, but she checked in with me every day. Like we then started voice noting each other every day. We still do it. She still checks in on me, like, but not in a kind of as if I'm incapable. It's, it's just that I, I feel the presence of her there. I, I feel that I have someone that I know supports me, but also is really invested in finding out how I'm doing and loves me and wants me to be well in the most selfless way possible. But I think she has also written a book, so she's written her first nonfiction called Motherland, which is about her identity as a parent. Mm -hmm. And so we've been having a lot of conversations about you know, our childhood and our upbringing because we had different childhoods. She was sent away to live in India at a younger age, so we were separated for a time when, when we were kids. But we were talking about our childhood and certain difficult parts of it when we were together. And I don't think I'd realize like how much she had looked after me and how much she had shielded me from because I literally just don't have memories yeah. of certain things. And 
it's like a debt that I can't repay. You know, I don't, I, I, you know, usually that your older sibling is like the person who gets like, you know, the, the sort of, it has to be like the more responsible one and so on. And there's more pressure on them. But I didn't, I don't think I realized how much. And I think when I sort of take into account like how incredible our relationship is as sisters, um, but also she's she's my friend, she's not just my sister, but she's also someone, because she is older than me, particularly in my 40s, as I struggle to figure out like what my identity is as a woman in my 40s, because we don't, we don't really know what we're doing because who our parents were, who our mothers were in their 40s is not what it's like yeah. for, for us now. She is someone who I look to for that. And, you know, and she reminds me to kind of be more compassionate of people and just whether it's about learning new things. And what's really funny about this is in my paperback, and I've literally just delivered a second manuscript, which in my paperback, you know, the core relationship in that is, is a sibling relationship, our two sisters. And in my second manuscript that I've just delivered, it's not the core part of the book, but there's definitely a dynamic with two sisters in that. But then nothing like the relationship that I have with my sister, because I think the way that I perhaps explore that in my fiction is, is really what happens if your relationship is not good. Like if, you know, and the reason why I think I'm really obsessed with that is because when we were growing up, you know, my sister and I were very much at the dynamic was that she was looking after me and I would just like, you know, uh, run around and be like a maniac. And it got to the point where when I then became a teenager, I was just like, we don't have anything in common. And I think it was when she sort of threatened to tell my parents that she'd found a packet of cigarettes in my handbag. And I was like, you're such a snitch. Like, who does that? (laughs) And I think I decided that she wasn't going to be, you know, my ally in this or whatever, because she basically was an extension of my parents. And then we went on this holiday to India. It was just me and her. We'd never been on holiday anywhere, just the two of us. And we got drunk on the plane and then we just actually just started talking to each other like we were human beings. And that was such a pivotal moment. And if that moment hadn't have happened, I don't think we would have had the relationship that we have today. Oh, that's so interesting. And it was, yeah, it was such a sliding doors moment. And I think possibly that might be what I, especially in in case of emergency, it's like, what happens if that, what would have happened to us if we hadn't had that moment? And if we were then having to have that moment in our adult lives, you know. Yeah, because it's interesting. Because obviously, there's a f- that you know there's a friendship dynamic with with your siblings, but it's different. It's not quite. It can't be as tidal as as the relationships, the romantic relationships you have, and the platonic relationships you have, because you have that family pull to one another. So it's almost like, I think, in a way, it can probably be easier sometimes to think, well, I'm just going to cut you out right now because you, because the pain of those kind of disagreements or those conflicts, I think, are so much more deeply felt with a sibling than with a friend because because they are your family. So it's almost like maybe the response can be more dramatic. Yeah, because the stuff that it triggers, I mean, if you think about like when you have arguments with your family, it's not necessarily really about the thing that you're arguing about in the present. Yeah, exactly. It's like arguments that have been dredged up from years and years ago. 
And the only way I think you really get through that is is by talking to each other or by being honest with each other about what upset you and why that upset you. So, you know, I mean, I don't mean, you know, my sister and I have definitely had to have like difficult talks about that or when we've upset the other and why it's upset us and so on. But the one thing I would say is that we listen to each other. Mm. And the thing that, um, the reason why I think, you know, she's, um, she's honestly the person that I speak to the most in, in any given day, um, not necessarily in real time on the phone, but the, the number of, we've already exchanged like four voice notes and it's like early afternoon. <laughs> But um, but it's because also we we both have a very similar ethics, mm -hmm. and b it's the knowledge. And I think both of us, you know, have been through therapy and whatnot. But um, it's the knowledge that you evolve. So so it's okay to change, and in fact, it's necessary to change. And you can help. E we can help each other change. And 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 you know, we're very similar in that we're open to learning, you know, rather than, so, and actually, and I say that because it sounds like such a like backhanded compliment that I'm giving myself, but like very often her reaction to something when we talk about something is, oh, I didn't realize that, tell me more. Whereas sometimes from some people in, in my life, it will be this obstinacy of, well, I don't want to change how I am, so I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, or I'm still going to believe in what I believe because it's too much effort to like learn something new or to change who I am. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. she has like a whole growth mindset about Which her. a lot of people don't have because I think for a lot, of, a lot of us, the default is defensive. But the conversations that I'm having with people is is worrying because of the lack of empathy, like the the sort of the refusal to like even think about what it might be like for the other person who is saying X, Y, and Z. And when you're then having a conversation with someone like that, I'm like, I can't continue the conversation with you because if you can't, if if we can't operate from a place of empathy. And and you also don't want to take on any other points of view to educate yourself or to learn or to try and understand all you're actually really seeking is for me to confirm what you believe in which case you might as well just like talk to a mirror like yeah. there's no point us having that conversation yeah. so now to be honest I just either shut those conversations down or I just change the subject or I just don't talk to those people as much yeah I think that's a really good approach um Okay, finally, your third love is an activity, a hobby. <laughs> I don't know how you would describe it, but I'm so excited to talk to you about this. Tell me about your third love. My third love is powerlifting, which is um, competitive weightlifting, and the goal is to lift the heaviest weights that you can possibly handle. Um, I fell into it by accident. So basically, I started to dabble around in learning how to lift weights, um, a few years ago because I didn't really know, I'd never sort of lifted a barbell, I didn't really know what any of it was. And um, and I really enjoyed it, I really enjoyed the, the fact that I didn't realise how strong I was, um, that I would very often like go into a gym session and think I couldn't do something, you know, because you, if you're usually working to a program, you know what numbers you need to hit. And I would kind of go, nope, there's absolutely no way I'm doing that. And then you'd do it and you'd go, oh, like maybe there's other stuff that perhaps I've been self-defeating about that I, you know, um, wasn't aware of before. Um, powerlifting specifically, however, um, I started in two th at the end of 2018 where I was, uh, I had a PT um, who's still my coach, um, who was uh, and is a professional powerlifter. And it, it's sort of one thing led to another where 
I was training in this like, you know, local commercial gym. And my approach back then was that I was fairly, still fairly new to it. So I didn't, the way I kind of handled myself in the weight section of the gym was by looking really unapproachable and just having headphones on all the time. But this guy sort of like tapped me on the shoulder and I was like, you know, snarled at him and just was like, what do you want? And he said, oh, there's this unofficial powerlifting competition. Do you want to do it? And I just was like, no, that sounds horrendous. Um, because I also didn't know what powerlifting was. And in my mind, when he explained it, I could just imagine like big dudes from like World's Strongest Man, right? And I was like, I don't think that that's me. But then I spoke to my coach about it and he was like, oh, by the way, I actually do this as a sport and I can help you with this if you want. And I think that you should try it. And I said, I think that you'd really like it. And so I did the training for it. And the training for it was, it was unlike anything I'd ever done before, because basically your goal is to get as strong as you can before your competition day. Like literally that's it. And so what ended up happening was that I just had to humble myself and learn a lot of things. So for example, if you are the type of person that does a lot of cardio, or I used to do a lot of cardio, and um, you know, unfortunately, we, we still live in a time I think where weight loss and weight maintenance is, has such a strong correlation with physical activity rather than, than that being a separate thing. Um, so I would say that I would always try and cheat the system, right? So like you're trying to work out or train with like the least amount of food and mm. you don't really think about like how much you're sleeping or whatever. But like when you're training for like a weightlifting competition, like all of that stuff has to be in check. And if you aren't prioritizing your sleep, if you're not fueling, if you're not eating properly, you literally can't, can't lift the bar. Yeah. And what happens is, and I did that a couple of times, is that when you realize that you are literally sabotaging your own progress for some like arbitrary marker in society that tells you that you, know, you need to be your slimmest or whatever, and you're like, but that means that I can't lift this thing up, which actually makes me feel really good within myself. For me, it's, it was like a no-brainer. So I just focused on that and then had a ton of fun at the competition. People are super friendly, so it reminds you that, you know, humanity isn't, like, dead. And, um, <laughs> and it kind of, like, affirms your belief in, in things, I think, a little bit. And so and powerlifting is one of those things where I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of people come to it with some sort of, like, mental health story or journey. And because I, th I do think, like, what it does for you mentally and psychologically and it is is enormous enormously positive but also if you are going into something like lifting heavy weights and if you're being self-defeating about it if you go into there thinking that you can't do it you may have the physical strength to do it but if your mental side isn't sorted out you're not going to be able to do it because you're just going to tell yourself that you can't do it but it has been it's been something that's changed my life it's introduced me I've made friends through it at a time in my life in my late 30s where, to be quite frank, I didn't know it was possible to make new friends. Like I just thought, oh my God, is, is this it? Like basically I'm just, I've lost like 50% of my friendship group because they've got kids and I don't. So it, it has changed everything. But biggest, the, one of the biggest things that has changed is, is definitely, I think the realization that there's a lot of times when my brain will tell myself something that actually isn't true. Um, it will tell me, I, I will tell myself that I can't do something and that's not the case. Um, but also it gives me uh, an enormous sense of, I think, confidence, particularly when I am moving in male dominated spaces 
And especially when, you know, things like sitting on a plane and someone spreading out or on a bus, it's like, that is not happening around me. I'm not yeah. giving my space up for anyone. Yeah. That is it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. You can listen to Love Lives on all major podcast platforms and you can also watch us on independent TV, all major connected devices and all social media platforms. I will see you next time. Bye.